0: Sages Stories.
1: Welcome to today's episode of Sages Stories, the official podcast of Sages, the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. Please make sure to hit the like button and subscribe so, you can stay up to date with our most recent episode and enjoy the show.
0: And you believe it, we are already to episode nine of Sage's Stories, where we shine the light on some of Sage's most impactful leaders. I'm your co host, Dr. Kevin L. from beautiful Cleveland, Ohio.
1: And I'm Dr. Sharin Tofai joining you across the country in Los Angeles, California. We have a fantastic show in, to- in store for you today.
0: Specifically to our astute podcast listeners, when you find out who our guest is, you might be asking yourself, are Sheeran and Kevin just finding out who Chad Ball and Amir Farouk just interviewed on Cold Steel, or are they just slow on the invitations uh, to these all-star guests? Well, it's the latter. I can assure you that we didn't know about the amazing episode that is literally hot off the presses out highlighting our guest on Cold Steel.
1: Yeah, for sure. Our Canadian buddies on the Cold Steel podcast are pretty active, I must say. You may recall this happened to us the first time last year, Dr. Leanne Feldman. Yes, she is Canadian and she was our stage's president this past year. And lo and behold, it happened again this year with today's guests. And she's not even Canadian. I mean, come on.
2: So
1: we might have just have to have a little powwow with our colleagues north of the border. Hey, Kevin, what do you think about that?
0: Uh, That's an excellent idea. Collaboration is good for the soul.
1: All right. Well, let's just lick our wounds and get this show on the road. Today's guest is Dr. Patricia Silla. After moving to the United States from the Ivory Coast, Dr. Silla received her undergraduate degree in biology from Georgetown University. She then earned her MD from the Whale Cornell Medical College. Dr. Silla completed residency training in surgery at Columbia University Medical Center, which note, none of these are in Canada, by the way. (laughs) Subsequently, she completed two fellowship training programs, colon and rectal surgery at the Mount Sinai Hospital and minimally invasive surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital. Just amazing pedigree. And if that wasn't enough, after a seven year stint at MGH Harvard Medical School, Dr. Silla moved to New York City where she is currently a professor of surgery in the division of colorectal surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital. And most notably and relevant to us, Dr. Silla is the president elect of sages and her term will run from 2023 to 2024. Welcome to Sage's Stories, Pat.
2: Thank you. I'm honored to be among the greatest podcasters in the history of sages. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That true statement. That's actually actually a true statement as the only podcasters. uh, Yes.
2: Canadians beat you to the punch because of our little affinity for transdental surgery. You know, I know surgery. So
0: we just, they, but they've done it to us twice now. So it's, uh, it's, it's becoming a bit of a rivalry here, but no, we're, we're going to collaborate and we're definitely going to link their podcast on, on our show notes and, and uh, tweet that out as well. It was, it was really an amazing episode. Um, I know there'll be some overlap, but as you know, on Sage's Stories Podcast, we focus a little bit less on the clinical work of our guests and really try to dig into their personal lives or professional stories and um, really get into their their inspiring uh, journey. So you undoubtedly are one of those leaders. And uh, so we'd like to always start off by letting our guests tell us a little bit about themselves where you grew up, what were some of your highlights along the journey uh, to your current position in New York City?
2: Oh, okay, I'm gonna try to be brief, but I- um, i grew- No, take your time, take your time. Um, I grew up in Côte d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, a small country on the west coast of Africa that used to be a French colony until the 1960, believe it or not. 1960 was the year of the independence, uh, which is really not that long ago when you think about it. But um, I, um, I uh, grew up there. I was lucky uh, in many ways, very privileged um, growing up um, as my father was from the country, but my mother was actually French American. So when I went to the, I went through French high school, uh, took my baccalaureate, and actually I was supposed to go to France to do my advanced uh, university training. And then because American, there was a change in plan at the last minute to say, no, 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 we're gonna send you to the US with my mother. And her mother was in DC at the time. And so um, I ended up going very much reluctantly. I wanted to f- actually follow my boyfriend at the time uh, in France to do, my, uh, to do my university. So I ended up actually in the US uh, in, uh, in uh, DC, went to watch, um, American University first and then transferred to Georgetown. And uh, so I was very lucky to get to the US. Obviously at the time I did not realize it, but it became very clear that the opportunities that I had from there on were incredible. I would have never had such opportunities either staying in Africa, or I think in my opinion, going to Europe, I think I was very fortunate. And so from there on, um, from, you know, I knew I wanted to be a physician. I was very interested in medicine from the beginning. So I ended up uh, after uh, graduating from and I went to Cornell in New York. I was obviously seduced by the, the appeal of New York City. And then I fell in love with New York City. I, uh, I stayed pretty much for all my training. Um, and I met uh, my husband at the time where classmates at Cornell but he was an MD-PhD. So I had already decided to stay for him uh, in New York to do my training, but I love New York City so much. It was really not much of a sacrifice to stay in New York to train. And then uh, we moved to, uh, after uh, my fellowship in colorectal surgery, we moved to Boston, uh, primarily because of him. Again, he was gonna do his cardiology fellowship like training, uh, in training uh, at Brigham. So we had a, a stay in, uh, in Boston. And I, again, I've got very lucky uh, as I did my second fellowship at um, MGH, and I stayed on staff for a couple of years. And then back to New York City. This is really where our heart belongs. We really wanted to come back to the city uh, to raise our children, so we got, we got very lucky to be able to come back. That's in yeah, that's an amazing journey. So this
1: is like Le Côte d'Ivoire, right? So you speak French? And, yes. And are there other languages that are spoken in the Ivory Coast?
2: So the main language is French because it was a French colony. Um, but there's probably about 200 ethnic languages being spoken because there's so many ethnic groups there. There are a couple of dominating ethnic groups, um, but uh, the French really has helped because you can, you know, it really helped unify, um, you know, people uh, after the colonization. So French is still the national language there. So one yeah, of, it is my first language.
0: One of my first. Uh... Uh, friends in surgery was actually from the Cote d'Ivoire it, it went during my time as a medical student I did a, a rotation in Gabon and he was one of the interns he's he's oh. back at Cote d'Ivoire Jean Fayette Yaraduno uh, so he and I, he had, had us there so that's a little fun fact as I met someone also from the Ivory coast many years that's
1: ago it. that's pretty cool Kevin has a lot of African friends Wow, but he doesn't introduce any of them to me. I really
0: <laughs> yeah, you, I'd introduce you to my. You had I, I had her at a whole African uh, event in uh, in Los Angeles. So yeah, yeah.
2: It was just one. We'll see.
0: <laughs> we'll do another one. We'll keep it
2: going. Usually, when they leave the country to go pursue education, they usually end up going to either Canada or Europe. Obviously, France, but other other parts of Europe. They don't unlike Nigerians or Central Africans because of the language they end up you know they don't end up typically in the United States so it's not that common to find Ivorians it's not a big community Right. Um, and do you
1: do you uh, have connections with the Ivory Coast professionally now or no
2: professionally no I still have obviously a lot of family uh, my parents actually have never left Ivory Coast uh, so <laughs> actually my, my father passed away a couple of months ago but I'm oh, mother...
0: so sorry thank mm, you sorry. I appreciate
2: But I have obviously my entire um, father's family still there. So I've actually been going back and forth, you know, to every coast a lot more often than I did before. Um, So not professional ties, but really a lot of personal uh, family connections, which is nice.
0: Well, I'll link you up with uh, Jean at some point, because he's (laughs) he's, he's still there. He's still operating. He's a general surgeon there. So yeah,
2: that's fantastic.
0: So can you tell us uh, a little bit about your family?
2: Uh, my uh, family. Um, so my um, husband is a scientist, he's an MD-PhD, um, who uh, essentially is very focused on fat metabolism, adipose tissue, is uh, uh, very involved in all that is basic science and NIH funded and doing very well. And although he's a cardiologist, he doesn't, he doesn't see patients that much. It's not really the basis of what he does. It's It's really 90% research. Uh, we have two kids, uh, Jonah and Arielle, um, who are 12 and 8 years old, two boys, and um, that's our. source. Uh, yeah, you know our. Yeah, sports. those are
0: beautiful names. Yeah, those are great
2: names. Thank you, thank you. And uh, again, I'm I'm very lucky to still have my mother, who uh, like I get to to see more often now. Obviously, that she's in Ivory Coast, and so uh, yeah, that's our that's our family. And my in-laws, obviously, were in New Jersey, so that's helped a lot in terms of child rearing, and helping us a little bit. Um, yeah and you still have the dc connection or is that i do the mom's back to abby coast i my grandmother on well, my mother said actually just turned 100 a couple months ago <laughs> oh <laughs> so, my
0: gosh wow I know some good genes yeah. dr right borsche
2: is still available
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> true true story
2: it crossed my mind once or twice yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're um, pen pals. My brother also lives in D.C., so it's it's nice. Mm. I still have I still have close friends in D.C., which I love. I I uh, I love D.C. Yeah, I mean, uh,
1: your passport pages must be so packed. <laughs> you could say that. Yeah, it's it's fascinating how you were able to balance your multiple degrees, multiple institutions, a very heavy a career with a husband that also has a very kind of demanding. Uh, um, academic career family all over the world and 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 children it was very impressive and you're so young
2: very impressive yeah the naive look but the the i think the key has been you know with my husband we've really been fortunate in that our careers were a little sort of out of sync to some degree so as i was building especially my um you know a lot of the research and ac- academic activities early on you know, he was he was not traveling as much, so I was able to get a lot of travel early on in my career without really having too much of an impact on family life. So that really helped. I think it's more a challenge now because he's he's really doing very well and giving more talks, especially internationally. So, luckily, the boys are are starting to get older, so uh, they're a lot more self-sufficient. And when we're you know they were just four or five years old, that was more of a challenge. But now they are really. They're they're really growing and they're quite mature and uh, you know they're your typical New Yorkers. They know how to they know how to take care of themselves. <laughs> so, shockingly enough, so but the travel is becoming more intense. You know, pre-COVID and now post-COVID, it's going to be more challenging to balance the uh, the academic travel. But we 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 make it work. I think that's what uh, we've we've gotten pretty good at it.
0: So when you moved, did you know kind of pretty early on that you wanted to just uh, pursue medicine or was it during undergrad? When did you make that decision?
2: Yeah, so I, I was really obsessed with biology when I was in high school. I really just loved everything science. And so I had a pretty good idea when I'm going to medicine. But, you know, I didn't have any um, doctors in my family. My father was a, a, business, a business person who started a computer company in Ivory Coast. My mother is a French teacher. Um, and so um, they were the first of their generation family to go to college, um, and so my, my father was really my role model, but there was really no f- link to medicine. It was sort of just a love of biology and and and, and the concept of taking care of people from very early on, so I, I when I got to the U.S. and I got to college, I, you know, I essentially knew what I wanted to do, so it became kind of You know, what do I do to get to medical school? I mean, I was on the path from very early on, which helped me stay very focused, and um, and you know, overcome obstacles as quickly as possible to get to the ultimate goal. Goal oriented. That's that was a mission. And did you learn English in
1: in grade school?
2: Yes, yeah, so in, in the French system, you take English as a, you know, it's a, it's a, a language, you have to, you, man, English is mandatory, and then you have to choose a second language, most of us took, you had a choice between German and, and Spanish. So, but I was lucky to be able to uh, learn English, and my mother being American and being an uh, English teacher, obviously that helped, because we, we did speak a fair amount of English um, in, a, in a household but it's, it's a whole different experience when you, when you move to the U S and, you know, you think, you know, the language and you think you can speak. And then, and then it just hits you that you just can't converse you know with the American college kids. I had to kind of learn, you know, the um, I had to learn sort of the conversational English, you know, the everyday uh, language. And then, you know, that took a little bit of time. So, but eventually when you were fully immersed, like I was, you know, you learn quickly. It's, it's just, you have to just completely, I, I literally avoided all my African friends. I, I, I did not hang out with the French. I just completely immersed myself that first year of college, determined to learn English as quickly as possible. So that helped. I'm
1: always impressed by internationals that speak English because they speak so fluently. And I always put myself in their, in their space saying, okay, if I were to speak Spanish or French, it, wouldn't, it would definitely not sound like they're English. You know, it's, it's very impressive. And then after medical school, at what point did you consider surgery as a
2: field? So it's interesting when, when I when I grew up, I mean, if I had a couple of experiences that really struck me is uh, we were involved in helping gather um, donations from the community where, where I grew up to help Medecins Sans Frontieres um, uh, with uh, 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 cleft clef palate repair. So we were very involved in this. And so I had sort of a, a little bit of a uh, ideal that I would become sort of like a facial reconstructive ENT surgeon. That was sort of like the picture I had of of medicine, of surgery. So I had a vague concept for surgery, but it was really not defined. When I went to medical school, I kind of pursued that. I latched onto that concept, you know, even in first year. And and, uh, that changed essentially just based on my exposure. So I I I thought about surgery, but it wasn't really until my third year that that really became cemented. That's the Doctors Without Borders. Yes.
0: So you then you then did two fellowships, and uh, I know that when I did that, my family was like, uh, "Get a job mm-hmm. already." Uh, I think I understood at the time that We're still uh,
1: telling you that, yeah, it. they
0: still are. I know, but uh, I, I knew at that time that minimally invasive surgery was was kind of less 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 likely to be can called a field and more was a, a tool to apply to a field, and I, I suspect that that was kind of a similar decision for you. But can you talk a little bit about? You know the decision to to kind of go go down two fellowship pathways. Yep.
2: So I think when I started in residency, um, I I was very um, interested in minimally invasive surgery um, and colorectal surgery. I think part of it was the mentorship that I received and and the surgeons that I really. You know i thought were incredible role models i was very lucky and i was actually part of my decision to um to apply and then eventually match at columbia as i met kenneth ford during the interview process and if you know anything about ken ford the co-founder of sages you know this is when i got first introduced to mis and and so i got i i drank the laparoscopic kool-aid you know way back then but at the same time you know he's a colorectal surgeon as well i was i was very interested in colorectal surgery and had great mentors you know larry whalen was there Uh, we had several surgeons who were really doing cutting edge, you know, colorectal procedures. So I kind of, I wasn't really thinking about MIS versus colorectal. The whole time it was sort of like a merger between the two plus endoscopy, obviously being also in the center. And um, so when it came time to decide, I was leaning more towards colorectal just because I really enjoyed all aspects of colorectal. I mean, it was especially the unirectal. you know, we kind of always joke that if you walk in a room and there's an interrectal procedure and you want to run away. This is, colorectal is not for you, right? You know what I mean. <laughs> you both know what I mean. Oh, yeah.
0: Yes, we, do. You know? yes, we and did. And
2: I loved it. I loved every aspect of colorectal. And so I I kind of migrated more towards colorectal, but always thinking, well, I don't have to restrict myself to colorectal. I'm going to get an MIS colorectal surgeon. So that was sort of my frame of mind. And um, so that's how, that's how it evolved. And then, you know, I, I, I had a great um, fellowship at Mount Sinai, so when I went to Mount Sinai, you know, at the time, you know, there, there was just not that many people doing advanced laparoscopy, and I, I got really lucky to be exposed to really incredible training, and um, the MIS piece was always, was always there, um, and we did a lot of laparoscopy, but I think what really happened is, when I knew I was going to move to Boston, uh, you know, following my husband, you know, the question came up as to what now, am I going to apply for a job, um, or I'm going to apply to a general surgeon job, surgery job. So I was, I was sort of in the process of looking for a job, and it just kind of hit me that you know I, I kind of felt, you know, what if I take the opportunity to just you know get to know Boston a little bit because I had really no ties with Boston at all. It was sort of like knocking on people's doors, not really knowing the scene. Said you know I could take some time and actually pursue laparoscopy more seriously, and maybe I can even think of, you know, marketing myself in a way um, as a MIS colorectal surgery in a more formal way. So it kind of hit me to say you know why don't I take a year to just you know get a feel for Boston do some research potentially if I'm lucky I can find a program that does both the fellowship and some research uh, that I was really interested in continuing and um and then you know combine my love of laparoscopy so that's what I kind of set out to do and I only interviewed you know to a handful of programs when I got to Boston thinking it's either going to work or I'll just take a job as a colorectal surgeon and I got lucky um, that I matched at MGH it was exactly what I was looking for it was just the right amount of laparoscopy, the right amount of um, of bariatrics, not 95% bariatrics. And I knew through the mentors and especially with David Ratner, who was my fellowship director, that I would have a chance to, to do laparoscopic colons and laparoscopic rectums and 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 all the whole you know plethora of laparoscopic procedures. So it was just a perfect match of a program for me. And, and I think he felt the same way. He felt, you know, she's already training colorectal, she's coming to refine her skills. And so it, it was just a perfect match. Um, and, you know I got I got a little bit of pushback from my colorectal mentors at the time it's really interesting that my colorectal mentors from Sinai were kind of like what <laughs> what do you need to do this mis stuff for you're already well trained and they, I don't I don't think that they had that vision I felt well it will make me an even more refined and sophisticated surgeon I think laparoscopic surgery especially suturing skills um, and the work in, you know, in the um, foregut work, I thought, I thought was another dimension to what we do in colorectal. I think it adds your, you know, your skill set just is incredibly enriched. And so I felt, why not? It will make me an even better you know, laparoscopic uh, surgeon. So it made sense to me, but it was interesting that at a time, very few people really good at vision. Dave Ratner was one of them. He just totally got it and was very supportive of that. And yeah. uh, I think he brought me back in on staff um, afterwards. He saw the value of this dual training. More than yeah,
1: for our audience that may not be surgeons, colorectal involves the colon, the rectum, and the anus. And if you're the laparoscopic colorectal surgeon, you're as far away from the anus as possible. <laughs> well, <your> surgery. <laughs>
0: this is well. Actually, if you're on the robot, you're even further away. That's uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: So you yell. But um, so, what year was it you did your colorectal fe- your MIS fellowship?
2: So I did my MIS fellowship 2007 to 2008. And did yeah. you feel that
1: at that time the colorectal surgery fellowships were not as minimally invasively inclined, and you need to do that? And do you feel the same is true now? or that to truly understand how to do really great laparoscopic suturing, for example, and get that skill uh, under your belt that do you still recommend? For most programs to have an MIS fellowship, if you really want to kind of,
2: no, I think think I've evolved in a in a good way. I think at the time when I was applying, and believe me, my collective fellowship was very much MIS. I mean, Mount Sinai is was you know is and remains a leader in minimally based approach. So we were, I think compared to other programs, we're much more advanced in terms of MIS skill training. You know, we had Barry Salki, I mean, you know, Barry, the history of Barry salki as well and Dan Heron. I mean, all these people came from that tradition of MIS. But I think, you know, when I when I when I see the trainees now and what colorectal programs offer, I think, you know, it's also the thinking of, you know, if you're gonna be pure doing pure colorectal surgery, you're not probably not going to require those laparoscopic skill set and I mean the suturing skill set. So, except for example, when you're doing a laparoscopic rectopexy for rectal prolapse, these are probably the only cases where you actually are required to suture the colon to the to the sacrum, you know, to, to fixate um, the, the the rectum in place. But you know, these days, if you look at the fellowships now you know, with a robot, that becomes a little bit obsolete. So with, the you know, especially with in the introduction of robotic training, this is less of a, of a priority. I think the, 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 the co-rectal fellowships do a very, very good job training, you know, our fellows in, you know, essential advanced metamaya skills, including suturing for these procedures.
1: And it's so interesting that Ken Ford, one of the founders of Sages, was your mentor. And now you will be the, you are the present elect of Sages, soon to be president. And so have you talked with him and what is 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 he like loving the situation what's the story there?
2: Unfortunately Ken Ford passed away uh, oh a couple of, yeah so okay. um okay. so you yeah, know so that's that was really um quite sad and you know his his wife uh died maybe 2 years before he did. Um so Sage's actually we had a a really nice um um uh, memorial uh, video that was made by the ACS about you know masters in surgery that's that's still available but yeah he passed away so unfortunately um i well, think I he, he, knew, yeah. he knew about my passion in in sages and he knew i was very active involved involved in the society so i think it gave him great pleasure and he had a, obviously he was essential in that trajectory because he really you know as i was a resident first year resident he told me i had to join and he brought me to to my first meeting so um but unfortunately you know we lost him it was a big loss for Sage. yeah, yeah.
0: I think one thing that, that is so clear from your CV, your well-known work, um, just knowing all of what you've done is is your passion for innovation. And you shared a, a very amazing story with Amir um, about how that innovation developed, specifically the journey of transanal total mesorectal excision, also known as TATME. Again, we'll point our listeners to that episode for a very detailed uh, analysis of that journey. But If you were to kind of pin down one take-home point about your lessons as a surgical innovator, uh, what would that be?
2: Collaboration. Hmm. I mean, I I think that was the key. And and I think also, um, you know, you may struggle to find collaborators within your institution. You may struggle to find collaborators even within your your network, your city, or even your country. but you will find people who get excited and motivated um, and, and will support you and, and see your vision and help you. So I think that was the biggest lesson for the success of TME and it was essential for this early success um, and, 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 uh, and really being implemented safely was to collaborate early with not just key leaders in the field, but you know people who believed, who had the same or shared the same vision of minimally invasive approaches to, for example, in this case, rectal cancer similar to poem um, so collab early collaboration and 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 building those bridges is essential I mean I got a lot of pushback um not so much with my institution they were very supportive because they saw the work evolve you know from model you know swine model to you know they I couldn't stop talking about this they saw you know presentations every week so they were completely in line with it but when we started to branch off, you know to other groups across the country, it was it was hard. It was difficult to uh, get people to really share the vision. There were a lot of concerns. And if I'd listened to those people, even within my own society back then, it would have been potentially stalled, you know, for a long time. So I think it was really important to collaborate early with people who really believed or had a vision um, of this approach um, to get get the work going.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about your practice too. Um, at this point, you're you're a professor of surgery and renowned internationally. It's clear that you're active in research. You talked about innovation. What what does a typical and I, I guess I use that word somewhat facetiously work week look like for you? Because I'm sure <laughs> it's quite varied. But but what's kind of the breakdown between clinical work, research, administration, travel?
2: Well, things things are just uh. About to get a bit more complex for me because I they asked me to uh, serve as uh, system chief for my correcal division. So wow! <laughs>
0: congratulations.
2: Thank you. About you didn't update well that. On, yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> it's
2: not on my CV yet. It's not on your
0: CV yet. Do we got to add that? Jeez. I'm still, still
2: negotiating my wait, contract. Wait, is this breaking news? Do we? This breaking is breaking news. Wow! News? All right. It's hard because I'm still I'm still in that awkward phase, as you guys know, of contract. You know, you know, finishing up contract negotiations. So, which is an important part. Um, so, very exciting, but my, you know, so my administrative responsibilities are going to increase significantly, but before then, you know, I've been very fortunate at Mount Sinai to be able to, um, you know, really spend a fair amount of time on research. Um, so, I've been, I've, been, I've been serving as um, director of clinical trials, but it's, you know, clinical trials, bringing uh, sponsored and investigator-initiated clinical trials has been really important to me. But my typical day is I have um, my Monday and Wednesday and half of my Thursdays are clinic days. Um, and my Tuesday is my administrative day, That's my, my research day. Um, and then I have uh, the, my main OR day um, is Friday. So I really do all my, especially my rectal cancer, colorectal cancer cases on Fridays. And then any additional um, interrectal volume or benign colorectal cases will be spread out throughout the week, wherever I can get OR time. So a lot of admin, admin time. So between the helping with the fellowship. Um, resident training, teaching, education, and now uh, the added responsibility of, you know, managing <laughs> a very large group. Uh, we have- How 15,
0: large is the group?
2: We have 15 surgeons, 15. Teachers, yeah.
0: Wow. And wow. So it's a large 15, group. But we have several yeah. sites.
2: You know, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. These are great people. Um, I really love, I really love the the, the group here is really wonderful. Well,
0: that's great. Congratulations. That's really, really cool.
2: That's
1: fantastic. So do you think with the added administrative role, that you are obliged to reduce all the projects you're working on and the clinical work?
2: Um, I think it's gonna require some multitasking. I mean, we have built our research team over the past seven years that I've been at Sinai I've been growing it steadily. So we're lucky to have research fellows, uh, we're residents and we have um, other research support. So I think I'll be able to probably disseminate and you know spread out and delegate a fair amount because they're well-trained. So reduce, I would say no, but just be more mindful of um, you know, of growth of the trials enterprise uh, and making sure that, you know, some of my um, colleagues take on, you know, some of those trials and and lead some of those trials on their own. Uh, So I'm excited about that. I think, um, you know, with with good organization, we can really, we can can do a lot of this within a a division. Yeah.
0: So um, we'll shift gears, talk a little bit about Sages. You know, we're the official podcast of Sages and we heard that you were, looped in uh, by the late, great uh, Ken Ford, and um, obviously his impact uh, spurred you on to this journey. We also love kind of hearing about, you know, how you got involved, how you kind of progressed through leadership and, you know, just share a little bit about, you know, your time at Sages.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, like very, um, most people within Sages leadership, I mean, I think my, my first experiences at Sages were, you know, being part of the committees, uh membership and then the big one for me was my breakthrough membership was um committee was a conflict of interest (laughs) wow (laughs) and
0: and and to our yeah and to our (laughs) listeners we just got the email today about if people are interested in committees you have an opportunity to to put that in so definitely do that That all right to my prior fellows yeah
2: you know, Sages became really my main society um, where I invested, you know, the, a lot of my time and effort. And I really loved the society, but it was really the opportunity to serve on these committees. And, you know, I, I wasn't on a co committee until later. I really served on membership. Uh, I was on this, um, I was involved in NOSCAR very actively from the beginning. So I was, I was also on the, there was an endoluminal task force that was put together early on. Um, As sort of like a a, a, another committee besides Noscar, and I was um, on the conflict of interest, which was actually a lot of work. I mean, this is when we were doing a lot of the early work on uh, on on establishing a a pathway to comply with this, you know, with the ACCME and regulation, and and trying to manage, you know, our members and faculty disclosures and making sure we're compliant. So it was a lot of that compliance work. And I, I was on that committee for seven years. I was a member for two years then wow, I was co-chair so for three years before I moved to chair position. So, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, I, I was, you know, if it's not, and this is important for people to know, you don't have to be on the most, you know, glamorous or, you know, sexy committee to really make an impact. And it's, it's really the work that serves the society is so important. And on the conflict, especially now, I think there's been a lot of challenges recently with, with um, you know, the new ECME rules um, especially when it comes to any type of ownership, um, we have to resolve for our, our society to be compliant. So this is this was an important part of what I did early on. And then from there on, that opens new doors. You know, you get noticed, people really like what the work that you do. And I was lucky to be able to uh, then uh, move to the colorectal committee. I was able to be offered other great opportunities like serving as a, um, the um, one of the section editors, the hindguts, hindguts section editor for surgical endoscopy, which... Was a ton of work, but a ton of fun. Um, I love that. Was, this was my first serious editorial job on a, on a surgical journal. Um, and so that was really a, a wonderful um, and incredible learning experience. And then, you know, other community participation and, and uh, you know, consensus development with our EAS partners and lots of projects that really um, kind of led to uh, more opportunities to do more work and have more impact on the society. So it's been a great journey. Um, Obviously, colorectal was important, so <laughs> we evolved from a colorectal task force to a colorectal committee uh, on my watch. So that was important, and so it's it's been uh, it's been really great. And I, I was obviously um, incredibly honored to serve as program chair in two thousand nineteen, and I think that was one of my biggest highlights. Obviously, to be able to to shape you know the content of the meeting was incredible experience. Yeah, and we love seeing everything you do at SAGES.
1: Um... I think uh, last year in the kind of, I guess it's called like a fireside chat that John Mellinger had with you, really enjoyed that. It was a great part of the meeting. And, um, you know, there's a lot of firsts in, in many respects uh, that your story has highlighted. You may um, remember this year at Sages, we had the uh, very deeply moving and sentimental Gerald Marx lecture by K. Marie King. That was just amazing in Denver this past month. And um, we will make sure that's also linked to the show notes for this because her talk, I mean, I was physically there. I hope the audio of it is equally as, as fascinating because it was so impactful. And she highlighted the many firsts of Black female physicians over the years. You will be the first Black female president of Sages, I believe. Um, do you bring any of that with you, and, and what does that mean? And how how is everything that you've experienced in your life kind of will affect how you will be the new president of Sages in
2: a couple years? Well, I mean, there there are literally no words to describe how you know incredibly you know grateful I am, but it's it's also incredibly satisfying to know that you know when you dedicate that much effort and work and passion towards you know a society and the work that you do, it's it's incredibly gratifying to know that you know you can get to that level. Um, I mean, I, there, there were many, you know, highlights along my SCS journey, um, but especially you know serving as program chair, um, you know, being asked to serve on the board and the exec, and having, you know, firsthand being able to 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 watch the work and shape some of that work happening on committees and, you know, help construct uh, the st- strategic plan for the society has been incredibly gratifying. So. There's no question. Obviously, this is the culmination of it. Is serving as president is is the biggest honor I've I've really ever had in my career. So it's it's been an incredible journey. And and I I try not to think about first as much. <laughs> it's it gets overwhelming at times when you when you really think of this. And to me, it's 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 even beyond going beyond you know being the first in that respect. It's really thinking of of my family and and my father and. Not being able to share it with my father, but my father has had so many firsts as well. Um, and so knowing, you know, all the obstacles he overcame to be to do what he did, um, and I could literally write a book about what he's done. But he was my he was and will remain my main role model in terms of all the barriers he broke. Um, you know, back in the day when there was just overt racism, and he married a French American white woman as an African male Muslim male was I can't even tell you the stories that you know he he had the experience that they had to go through as a couple to raise a biracial couple uh, biracial children. So it's it's it brings this home. It's it's you know knowing what he went through to get to you know to get to to be who he was, um, um you know, it's it's there's nothing more satisfying to know that I was able to put in the work um and and achieve you know what i consider to be the highlight of my career and i think he would be you know he was already quite proud but it's i, I wish he could witness that it's it is incredible that's very lovely
0: yeah i wish he could too but you're you're you know, we're really thrilled uh, for that for you and i know it's i know you got a you got a year ahead uh in the past <laughs> the past three presidencies have kind of been off off cycle a little bit with the with the meetings and a lot of, you know, juggling around, but we're, I, I feel like we're kind of back on the traditional uh, pathway. So you sort of have that, you know, that, that year back a, a little bit. So how are you going to, how are you going to use this sort of preparatory year uh, uh, to get ready for 2023?
2: I, I couldn't be more excited. I mean, I think there's a lot going on with Sages that really, we're, we're going to mess up so many really exciting things. And Um, I think there's a lot of developments, you know, especially in in when it comes to education and what the committees are doing. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on. So I think the the big impact has been obviously that our, our prior presidents have done an incredible job, you know, setting the stage, you know, for all these um, developments, especially when it comes to, you know, launching OWLs and the development of masters and all these initiatives going on. It's, it's been incredible. So to spend time on the exec has been incredible learning experience. And, you know, you know, you spend time with Leanne and, And then before her, you know, Rory, before she, she uh, moved on from the exec and Horacio and John, I mean, I can't tell you, you know, our exec meetings are just unbelievable. And the amount of work um, that the committees are doing just to be able to digest it all and, 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 and plan for the next wave and next innovation, we can barely keep up with the number of publications being submitted, the guidelines, you know, the new ideas and fresh ideas, all the innovation happening at once is just overwhelming, but it's, it's good training because now it comes down to, you know, continuing the mission. You know, we 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 have we have our, our mission is clear, we know what we want to do, but you know, allowing you know room for really cutting edge innovation and making sure that we stay on point for our members and making sure we continue to deliver the highest level of quality, you know, educational materials. This this is what we do, and this is what we do really well. So. In a way it's it's overwhelming just because of the magnitude of what it represents, but on another on another way it's not so much because the work has been has been already established and is well underway. And it's just our committee members. I mean, I had three Sages meetings today. <laughs> this is like the fourth. Oh my god. I'm not president yet. <laughs> <laughs> it is absolutely well,
0: incredible. We were trying to keep you up though for this one. We know that you may we know that you may have been catching a couple of Zs in the other one, but not this one. <laughs> no
2: definitely wide awake wide awake and engaged
0: you couldn't you couldn't sleep for this one so
2: (laughs) (laughs) but no you know what i mean this ages meeting there there's nothing passive about those meetings it's if these are work meetings you're just you know scheming and planning your next move and um so it's it's extremely satisfying to see that amount of productivity uh among among our membership it's it's overwhelming at times Hey, Kevin, D- do you hear that? Do
0: you? I do. I do. Yeah. I hear that. Um, I hear for that. For our next sound.
1: segment, this is, okay, Pat. You <laughs> we are the world. We are the sages.
2: We are the sages. Sing it, everybody. We are the
1: ones who make you brighter days. So let's start cheating. Do you hear okay. that? Okay. Our sages segment is coming up. It's the We Are the Sages segment by popular demand especially by Dr. Archana Ramaswamy. This is her favorite part of the podcast. <laughs> so, Pat, this is the We Are the Sages segment. We would love to hear your most memorable, salacious, funny, sages moment.
2: Oh, there are so many. But I think, to me, what would I think would sum up, you know, the joy... And sometimes shocking yes. <laughs> events that occur at our stages <laughs> yes. meeting is when the you know there was a group of, of I believe they're Japanese, Japanese men. Yeah, these Japanese. The Japanese <laughs> of, they,
0: they're probably up for uh, for one of these Sages stories episodes. We might have to get one of, all, because of them because they've come up. Are yeah, all of them? Yes.
2: <laughs> I remember the shock value. I had never seen anything like it. And yes showed up in their onesies yes. literally yes. on stage
1: with and, no shirt underneath you know or like, underwear it, underneath yeah I no, no.
2: or, or and I, I think it really summarized you know the the, the incredibly important value of fun and and uh, you know not taking yourself too seriously you know after hours and really yeah. enjoying good company and good fun. And decompressing in a healthy way it was it was quite enlightening <laughs> you sing all at once i mean the sing-along it's all about the sing-along right the sing-off it is it really is we are sages um is really the the main theme uh, we are the world <laughs> we are the sages we are the sages yes i get emotional when we sing that i think we all do yeah
0: so Sharon knows I'm I'm a last word freak. We we usually have to have one more question, but I, I also <laughs> wanted to highlight uh, one really fun fact about your upcoming presidency, uh, specifically as it relates to the to the location of the meeting. Uh, so mm-hmm. as you know, Sages 2024 is going to be in the best city in in the country, which is Cleveland, Ohio. Now I know I have way? yeah. So mm-hmm. I know I have an LA and an and, and a New York City guest on, but but face it, you you're both really really excited to come to Cleveland in two years, right?
2: I'm thrilled. I love Cleveland.
0: <laughs> so. So what are you most excited about for Sages 2024 in Cleveland, Ohio? Other than you're presiding over the meeting, <laughs> which we're excited for. I'm excited that you're you're coming to preside over a meeting in Cleveland. So.
2: I think I'm more excited about welcoming more of the international members. I miss that, I think. Yeah. Um, we've taken a bit of a hit over the past two nice. years. It's probably gonna rebound a little bit, but I, I would love to see more of our, um, you know, global um, group returning to, uh, to present and to the stage. So that's, I think, I think this is a year where we might go back to the pre-COVID levels of, of uh, international attendance. That would be nice especially the japanese yeah, but we'll have to we have to show them a good time kevin you know what i mean so hopefully you can. I, i'll
0: get some yeah i'll, I'll help <laughs> that out. i got i got two years to plan uh but i'll definitely help out with that
2: yeah i get probably. the hard
1: rock cat hard rock uh not hard rock the rock of
0: the rock and roll hall of fame rock and roll and hall of fame yes like yep yep okay
2: like you're you're hired, to the yeah. velvet
1: tango room
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> the,
2: the program chair but also the uh you know, the, the party, the event party. Yes. The social
0: uh, planning, happy to help. Absolutely. Although there's plenty of Sages people in Cleveland. So
2: (laughs) this is true. So
1: looking forward to it. Thanks for your time, Pat. My pleasure guys.
2: All right. Thanks for having me.
0: You're welcome. That was great. And that wraps up today's episode of Sages stories. You can view the show notes for additional information mentioned on the show. Also, please visit sages.org for membership information and for the most recent news from our society. Follow us on Twitter at sages_updates. Make sure you hit the like button and subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. Tune in again next time and remember, you can't spell minimally invasive surgery without sages.